Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Nate Hockman about young conservatives and what's happening today on the young right. Nate is a Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute, a previous contributor to Acton's Religion and Liberty magazine, a previous guest on this podcast discussing environmental issues from a conservative perspective, and, in my opinion, is one of the sharpest and most interesting voices among the young conservatives out there. This episode is a little different from previous episodes of Acton Line in that it's much more of a conversation between Nate and I than the typical interview we host. But I think it's interesting and revealing about where some of the intellectual energy is amongst young conservatives, what's informing how they see the world, the state of the nation, and American culture, and how they think our national political and cultural problems should be addressed. I hope that you enjoy it. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. joined today by Nate Hockman. Nate is a Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute, a conservative fellow at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and an associate contributor for Young Voices. His writing has appeared at publications such as National Review, City Journal, The Dispatch, and the Acton Institute. He is co-author of the piece, Is Critical Race Theory Un-American? in the winter 2021 issue of Religion and Liberty. Nate is a senior at Colorado College. You can follow him on Twitter at NJ Hockman, where you can occasionally find him and I agreeing and disagreeing. Nate, welcome back to Acton Line. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's good to be back. So my problem with this conversation is that there are so many different directions that I want to take it. And what we agreed to talk about today is um, young conservatives, the young right. And we will start somewhere and just kind of see where it goes and let this be a, uh, in the words of F.A. Hayek, an emergent phenomenon. (laughs) Um, Short of just starting with a, Nate, what's up with the kids? um, Let me try to approach it as, as I see it. I, as I survey the landscape of young conservatives... Uh, I think there is a belief that has also seemed to me to infuse a lot of our political conversations that uh, America is in a very dark place and there are younger people who are dissatisfied not just with the direction of the country but have been dissatisfied with the direction of the conservative movement leading up to this point and think radical things need to change as a result of it. And we can get into some of the nuances of that, but am I – correct or incorrect or partially correct in my assessment? No, I mean, I think that that is true of the my demographic of conservatives, broadly speaking, conservatives under the age of 30. Now, I think the distinction needs to be made is that is a description of young conservative intellectuals and activists and organizers, right? The, the conservative political class. I don't know if it's true of every sort of Republican-leaning voter under the age of 30. Uh, And this is a a distinction that I think gets lost a lot of times when people make this generalization about young conservatives under the age of 30, broadly being part of whatever you want to call the new right, um, is that there are different, there are different subsets of conservatives under the age of 30. And there's also 
uh, a pretty significant uh, subset of conservatives and Republicans under the age of 30 who are not on board with that at all, right? I mean, famously, a lot of college Republican chapters uh, at universities like Harvard uh, didn't endorse Trump in 2016, and some didn't even endorse him in 2020. And there's a, some of my friends on the, on the young right uh, are very much a more sort of socially liberal, laissez-faire kind of um, – that's the, their brand of conservatism. But certainly the, the intellectual energy and the ferment on the next generation of conservative writers and thinkers and, and intellectuals is on the side of believing that, you know, for all of its, its myriad successes, movement conservatism for the last three or four decades has fundamentally failed to prevent America from moving left in a very radical way with consequences for our current moment that are genuinely quite dire. Why do you think that is? Well, if you look at American culture today, right, which is generally, I think, the metric that is uh, look, looked at from folks who, who have this point of view, um, by any metric, all of our major cultural institutions in America, all of the power centers in American life, uh, and the broader sort of cultural milieu has moved pretty significantly to the left. Now, there are conservative wins, right? Uh, we Most states have uh, better gun laws. Uh, uh, than they did 20, 30 years ago. Uh, there's been uh, some really successful reform of tax codes where a lot of states have much lower taxes, much more competitive business environments uh, than they did three or four decades ago. Um, so it's not as if the conservative movement has failed in every aspect of its project. But fundamentally, uh, you have a, the radical decline of religiosity in America in, in a way that is unprecedented in American society. A uh, really poisonous anti-American ideology replete with uh, things like critical race theory, which we talked about uh, uh, in the essay that I wrote with my friend Sam for, for Acton, um, that is now accepted as conventional wisdom in uh, our institutions of higher education, our media, uh, and the variety of other sort of narrative-defining institutions, uh, and a you know, as a result, two generations now of Americans who have been taught to hate the country that they're set to inherit and to hate everything about it. And the consequences for that, you know, we're just beginning to see. But if you looked at what happened just this summer with the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots and the way that everyone from big business to the academy to one of the, our major political parties to our athletic leagues basically bent the knee behind the narrative of, of critical race theory and of the sort of 1619 project view of American society, that is a very dark place for our country to be. You cannot live in a country where the people who are going to inherit the reins of power are sort of elite ruling class in our cultural and political institutions fundamentally hate the foundations of this country. And that's where we are today. And it's, uh, it really is an incredibly destabilizing phenomenon. And we can't continue to go this way. If we continue to move in the direction that we've been moving for the last two or three decades, um, there won't be an America eventually. And that's a, a very dire assessment. And it's not one that's comfortable to come to terms with. But it is one that conservatives desperately need to come to terms with if they're actually going to be capable of meeting the urgency of the moment. So, the list that you give as I listen to it, and I mean, perhaps we should set some uh, where we're coming from here individually. As I mentioned, you're a uh, senior in college. I am, uh, I'll turn 40 next year, so I'm now a decade and a half out of college. Um, I've heard 
in their own times, the versions of all of those different things that look at the culture, it's moving leftward. We have all these problems. I heard it 10 years ago. I heard it 15 years ago. Um, You can read back through history and you can see critiques of the culture moving leftward. You can look at the 1960s. I was actually talking earlier today with a... uh, a colleague about the show Mad Men, that if you start watching it in the very beginning and you see the kind of uh, idea of the 1960s coming into the decade and you see the chaos of the 1960s as you're exiting the decade. And you can point to all kinds of historical examples, I think, that um, may, you know, we can debate the character of the difference between that and the examples you gave. But it strikes me as an argument that's been made a lot. You have people also within that conventional conservative uh, movement. Yuval Levin has been pointing out the problems in American institutions for a while. You could look at Bill Bennett in the 1990s pointing out the problems with values and morality in America. From a historical perspective, in your opinion, what do you think is different about now that is necessitating this radical new way of looking at things, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, and a radical new way of approaching finding solutions to these problems, or at least new ways of ameliorating these problems, because I don't know that a lot of problems like this actually have solutions. Right. Well, I think they do have solutions. I think conservatives haven't been very good at being willing to look for them creatively for a couple decades now, because institutionally, the conservative movement has been very invested in not seeing these problems as the problems that they are. Um, But the, I mean, one of the differences is just a matter of degree. You have two generations now who have been inculcated in a radically different cultural and political understanding than their older counterparts. And they are making up increasingly a larger swath of the ruling class in America and of just the voting base, right? I mean, millennials uh, by polling have a much different worldview, much different view of politics and culture than their older counterparts do. They are much more liberal. Uh, They're much less patriotic. They are much less committed to the American nation as such. Uh, And they are the people who are going to be, you know, inheriting the country and increasingly are uh, running the country. So there's just a generational divide in that what we saw happening in the 60s, the bill for that is now coming due. In the 60s, what was happening in the academy was worrying for real reasons, but the country was still made up of people who had fought in World War II and had, you know, weathered the Great Depression. And those were the people who made up uh, the American electorate and the American sort of citizenry more, more broadly. Now the people who grew up in the 60s academy are the ones who are running the country and they have a radically different uh, understanding. And, and, and the second part is inextricably tied to that. But It's just a question of power, which is you now have a unified control of all of the power centers in American society, with the exception maybe of the military, but that's changing too, by a radical, woke, left-wing activist class. And we are literally now seeing, ironically, the left using corporate power to subvert democracy. The perfect example is uh, Christy Nome reneging on um, on uh, the transgender sports bill because major corporations were threatening her and telling her that they were going to economically bankrupt her state if she passed this. The Georgia voting bill, right? The MLB pulling um, uh, the All Star game from uh, from Atlanta. You have uh, and and all of those major corporations and, and those you know big business interests are working in lockstep with 
the mainstream media, which is capable of, uh, of, of defining the narrative for a lot of people, our major technology companies, including Google, which have an enormous amount of power to define what we see and how we think, uh, and the entrenched bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., as well as obviously the Democratic Party. The conservatives' capacity and tools for resistance to this sort of encroaching cultural, political, social phenomenon are increasingly slim and narrow. Um, now we don't even have the federal governments anymore, right? I mean, th this is the, the sort of the, the significance and the urgency of the moment is that that is a new phenomenon. Corporations being able to literally override the will of the people of a state with the most radical left-wing uh, cultural agenda, right? Biological men competing in women's sports, right? The fact that, that corporations are with that are controlled by a left-wing activist class are able to, to tell a governor representing the will of the people that she needs to veto a bill or else they'll destroy her state is not a, uh, a, a phenomenon that really has much precedence in American society. And the fact that that's happening in tandem with all of the other major powerful uh, institutions in American life working in a, as a coordinated block to push this is, a, um, is something that I think a lot of conservatives still haven't fully come to terms with, the ramifications and the consequences of that. So a lot of the solutions suggested that I hear, um, and I guess where it would depart from, you know, call it what you want, the dead consensus or whatever, um, a, a view on government that and, and on state power that conservatives would have had for a long time would be to say that you, uh, if you look at the corporation example that you just gave, um, that we don't want corporations to get. And again, that's a problem that, you know, again, we could talk about degrees of difference. You can go back to Milton Friedman in the 1970s, writing that the, you know, the obligation of corporations is to deliver value to their shareholders, which was a complaint against corporate activism of its own time. Um, but the what's different to me is that the argument from the right seems to be we should intervene using state power to get them to row the oars in the other direction. Is that a fair characterization on my part? Well, a lot of times it is. I think it's much more nuanced than that, though. I mean, speaking for myself, I am sometimes skeptical. Yes, I want to be clear about that. I'm, I, I've put you in the awkward position of trying to speak for as a voice of your generation. And in a way, <laughs> I'm awkwardly doing it for mine. So, you know, to while we may generalize, let's just state that in most cases, we're speaking for ourselves as the possibly poor proxies that we serve for our own respective generation. Well, look, I'm perfectly happy to be the, the voice for my generation. <laughs> <laughs> well, same here. So fine. Well, let's talk uh, definitively here from here on out. Right. But I mean, as someone who's, who's broadly, uh, you know, I'm, we've talked about this offline. I'm someone who is uh, oddly ideologically ecumenical and that I have friends across the conservative spectrum. I have incredibly never Trump friends and I have friends that are fully on board with the most radical post-liberal iterations of the new right. Um, I'm someone who has um, broad sympathies with a lot of, of the, the the priorities of the new right, uh, and as someone who's generally associated uh, with with that particular cohort of young conservatives, but also someone who's uh, has you know real reservations and skepticism about some of the proposed solutions, um, particularly as it relates to sometimes, not always, but sometimes the exercise of state power that is being proposed by the, the sort of new right types um, is short-sighted and will backfire on conservatives. So I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, to admit that, um, you know, as it, as it relates to some of the big tech stuff, for example, I think um, empowering uh, a centralized bureaucracy to regulate big tech is, is very short-sighted um, considering who controls the bureaucracy as it stands today. But all of that is to say, to me, what it fundamentally is about outside of 
specific policies is is a reassessment of our of conservatives priorities right why are we cutting taxes for corporations that hate us and are actively using all of their power to advance a cultural agenda that is fundamentally opposed to everything that we stand for right why is the first thing that we do when we get into power still the same thing that that was the first thing that republicans did when they got into power in the 1980s which is tax cuts and deregulation right there needs to be a reassessment of what conservatives and Republicans are prioritizing when they have power and, and not just using it to do the same thing that we were doing in the 1980s. Well, let me stop you there and make two points. Um, the first one to your second point there, which I agree with and have agreed with for quite a while, that there is, you know, th- there are a lot of names that goes by now. Zombie Reaganism is one I've I've often called it bad Reagan karaoke, where rather than doing what Reagan did in in the lead up to his election in the 1980s, which is take conservative principles, which I think are timeless and apply them to the problems of the time. You have a lot of people who just would get up there and do their best impression of Ronald Reagan, the man himself, in his own time and talk about deregulation and tax cuts as if tax policy should be the same in, you know, 2005, as opposed to the 1980s when all the rates that Reagan was seeking to lower were much higher. So I I agree with you on that part. The first point that you made, though, and where I think a lot of the divide comes in is, well, why should we be cutting taxes for corporations that hate us? Um, I think the answer would be, and I am inclined to it, is that uh, we don't want to make and we should not want to legitimize the idea of using tax policy as a means to reward our friends and punish our enemies, that that is not the idea of good governance. And that is not uh, that is something that I think the right has had a lot of credibility in critiquing the left from doing of rewarding, picking winners and losers, rewarding the kinds of businesses that they think are good and punishing ones that they think are bad. And what I see of a lot of this as is looking at what the left has done and saying, we don't think we can beat them. So we should internalize their logic and do a lot of the same things only towards our ends. And I think this is fundamentally like the the philosophical dividing line, or at least one of the philosophical dividing lines between the so-called new right, for lack of a better word, uh, and folks who are defensive of the older sort of conservative way of thinking. You said the conservatives have had a lot of credibility um, on defending the sort of idea of government policy as neutral, as opposed to the left, which uses it to sort of actively reward their friends and and, um, and punish their enemies. But where has that credibility gotten us? I mean, there, we, we've, we have sort of systemically failed to stop the country from moving left and stop the left-wing activist class from consolidating power, both in the private and public sector. And to me, it it strikes me as uh, it is difficult to see how you could look at the landscape in modern America and think that what conservatives have been doing and the way that we have been approaching politics doesn't need revision. It clearly needs to, to, to think creatively about how we apply conservative principles. And the last thing I'll just say is I think you're absolutely right about Reagan and the timelessness of conservative principles. I am not someone who thinks Reagan was a failure. I think he was a fantastic president. And frankly, I would think he would he would be shocked and dismayed at the invocation of his name today to justify a lot of the policies that are, you know, basically the same policies he's pushing. Reagan took conservative principles and applied them to the needs of the moment in the 1980s. Conservatives need to take those same principles but apply them to the needs of the moment in in 2020 and 2021, the, the, the biggest problem in American society in 2021 is not high taxes 
or you know, an overregulated business environment. I like low taxes. I like a competitive business environment generally, but that is not a priority for anyone who's trying to conserve the American political regime. And uh, and and you know, we need to to actually think about what our priorities are and how to apply conservative principles to them, rather than a sort of rinse and repeat 1980s era policy agenda. I agree with a lot of that. I think the move of the culture leftward is what social scientists call an overdetermined phenomenon. There are a lot of explanations for why that happened. And what I I don't know that I'm convinced about in the explanation there is the approach to tax policy that says we shouldn't use it as a tool to reward our friends and punish our enemies is a major contributor or a significant contributor to that problem or even all that reflective of our problem or that if there would have been a different approach to it to say that, you know, corporations that do the kind of things that we're pointing to in Georgia or in North Dakota, that if only we had been um, punishing them or dropping the hammer on them a little harder, they wouldn't do those things. I don't know that it's true. And I think there's an is ought question here, right? So we're looking at the state of the country as it is. And I think we should be asking ourselves, well, what kind of a country do we want it to be? And I don't know personally if I want it to be the kind of country that uses, you know, one of the most aggressive branches of the government um, and one of the most Byzantine parts of uh, government, federal government policy in the tax code to punish and reward people any more than it already does. But it, all, it already is, and it has been for a century, right? This is, I think, the fundamental critique. But that's, but, that's the, the, but that's the question of, like, what should conservatism be trying to accomplish, which is, do you want to try to unwind that, which is why you had people like Steve Forbes proposing a flat tax, which is why you had more libertarian people proposing a consumption tax as a way to get take this overly complicated system, scrap it, and create something that is far more uh, fair to people as a result, rather than saying, well, it already is this way, so we might as well use it to our benefit. But the flat tax never got passed, right? I mean, this is- I the, agree the, with the, 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 But, the, but this, is, this is the problem, right, is that a, a sort of capital P, capital C, principled conservatism is, is much more ideal than a conservatism that is willing to engage with American politics as they exist today and actually to approach the landscape as it exists today realistically. But the conservatism of the ideal is not a conservatism that is actually capable of conserving very much. We've seen how that works for the last two or three decades. We need a conservatism that is willing to actually engage with American politics and government and society as it exists today or we will continue to lose. And there's only, you know, there is eventually, if we continue to lose, the consequences will get more and more dire and there won't be an America to conserve at all anymore. So, you know, in the ideal, I agree with you. It is it is great to think of uh, the possibility of something like a flat tax of uh, a, a sort of uh, trying to move America back to a place where we don't use, uh, you know, the government doesn't pick winners and losers. But that is what America has been like for a century. And it has only gotten worse because conservatives have refused to actually think politically on the same terms that their enemies have. And a little bit more of a friend-enemy distinction, a little bit more of a willingness to think politically, to engage with politics in the same way that the people who are actually winning do, is the only way that we can actually ever hope to potentially get to a, a place where there's a re restoration of the traditional political regime in America. Because as, as there, is, there is this tendency for conservatives to want to lose gracefully, to 
feel really good about our side being the principled side, the side that has credibility with the people, the side that uh, is, 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 uh, is, is interested in, in, in principles and in um, this ideal America that exists in our head. But while we do that, the left eats our lunch, <laughs> and they've been doing that for decades. Uh, and I'm not interested in losing gracefully. I care too much about this country. I think the stakes are too high, and I want a conservatism that is muscular enough to actually engage on terms where we might lose anyways, right? But at least we, we threw the kitchen sink at it rather than feeling really good about how principled we are and uh, you know how you know we're better than the left in terms of not using the government to reward our friends and, and punish our enemies while we continue to, to log loss after loss after loss. And eventually America declines uh, and it, you know the, the regime frays and fractures and there's no America left to pass on to my children. I think losing gracefully is perhaps the most uncharitable way of putting it. I, I think I would characterize it differently, which is to say you, you said the idea of throwing the kitchen sink at it, which is that I think there's something inherently small C conservative by saying the idea of uh, winning by any means whatsoever. And I'm, I'm not necessarily attributing that belief to you. But when I hear throw the kitchen sink at it, that, that does seem to suggest do whatever you got to do to win, um, that there are things that should be off the table as a result. Um, that is like fundamentally different. So I'll, I'll, I'll put that idea out there and then I will draw back to something, a previous conversation that you and I actually had on uh, Clubhouse, which is – we, we talked about the Department of Education. I think it's a good example here for kind of what you were talking about of dealing with the politics of the moment. Um, I am someone of the belief that the Department of Education should not exist. Uh, you, uh, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, we're making the argument that we should utilize the Department of Education because it exists to try to direct curriculum away from um, some of the kind of anti-Americanist curriculum that you were talking about earlier in this conversation. Um, I think as what I had said is I'm, I'm, I'm open to being convinced on that, but what I want to know is, um, assuming that you don't reject my goal of wanting to get rid of the department of education, you need to walk me through how does empowering it and using it more ever lead to the goal that I am after. If wanting to get to, uh, the idea of a, a flat tax or at least a radically simplified tax code is the goal how does embracing the problems that you identified as a problem ever lead us to the goal of getting there other than just making it worse? And then all we fight over is who gets the levers of power in order to punish, you know, the punish their enemies and help their friends. So if I remember correctly, because it was an interesting clubhouse conversation, I wasn't arguing for empowering the Department of Education more than it already is. And this is not just about the Department of Education. It's a larger principle about how conservatives approach the exercise of state power. But while I agree, again, with you in the abstract that the Department of Education is probably unconstitutional in the traditional constitutional understanding of the word and it shouldn't exist, um, it does exist and it's going to exist for a very long time. And the problem with approaching uh, you know, a majority Republican uh, legislature or, or a Republican in the executive branch um, with the first principle being the Department of Education shouldn't exist is that conservatives and Republicans then do not exercise the power that they have been given to actually try to advance, advance their causes because of this abstract principle that the Department of Education shouldn't exist. 
we are loath to use the Department of Education when we are in control of it. The left is perfectly happy to use the Department of Education when they're in control of it. So you have this phenomenon where because of our abstract principles about trying to engage with politics in terms of the way that we wish it was rather than the way that it actually is as it it exists, we are given power in the Department of Education and we don't use it because it goes against our principles. And that again is a is a that is a formula for continuing to lose. I do not think we should radically expand the Department of Education. I don't think we should empower it more than it is. But we should recognize that it's probably going to be with us for at least a generation, probably more than a generation. And if we refuse to use it and to use all of the other things that we would really wish weren't there in the first place because of a abstract principle that we shouldn't be using them because ideally in an ideal world they wouldn't exist. Um, we are going to continue to lose. We, we do not have power in all of our cultural institutions anymore. There is no cultural institution or you know, big business or any other power center in American life that is aligned with conservative interests. The only thing that we have left, or at least have a shot of controlling, is the federal government and state legislatures. If we want to, to conserve America and to have any semblance of America to pass on to our children, we need to be willing to think creatively about what our deficits have been for the past few decades in terms of statecraft and in terms of crafting conservative policy that's effective, and then use the power that is available to us to push back on the massive concentration of power that the left has amassed in the culture uh, and to a certain extent in government as well. Let me take another crack at this. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. The idea that it is some uh, being bound by some abstract principle, again, I think is uh, possibly the most uncharitable way to put it, that we have this ideal in mind of what it should be, and therefore we should act as if the ideal is currently in existence. And I, I would probably agree, I want to think on it more, but I would probably agree that I think that that's, you know, th- there's a critique in there that is correct. What I am concerned about, though, and what I am unsure about is uh, if assuming we agree on the end goal and maybe take it back to the tax policy question um, of the end goal of the the tax code being less Byzantine and less a tool to be able to be used to reward friends and punish enemies. How does embracing what it has become and using it, because that is what I think you're saying the political moment necessitates, ever get us to where we want to go, or at least where I'm saying I want to go? Well, it's, it's difficult to exactly map out how that's going to happen. But what is true is that it is preferable to the alternative, certainly, which is to not engage with political power at all because we prefer that things aren't the way that they are. You don't think there's something in between that, between um, the idea of taking the logic and a, a principle and an idea of governance that I think conservatives would have rejected as recently as, as 10 years ago um, and saying, well, we shouldn't do anything at all. I mean, there's a lot of space between, you know, the, the goal lines of those two positions to be able to say, yes, there are things that we should do, but there are also things that, you know, it maybe perhaps it is just a philosophical problem of being a conservative, that part of that says that there are things that should be off limits to you. There are things that you should not do as a result of that. Um, I think often in constitutional terms, part of my problems with some of the new uh, view on jurisprudence is that it reads to me just like, well, 
the left has been operating on a living constitution idea for for so long now. We just need a living constitution doctrine of our own where we can see anything that we want in the constitution and we can have it delivered by a majority of people in black robes. And I, I think there are things that just as a conservative, it may be unfair in a sense, but they're just uh, part of the nature of conservatism strikes me that there should be certain things that are off limits. Well, and there are. I think there is certainly there is the most radical voices on the new right really are advancing a uh, in any sort of uh the, the, the ends always justify the means. Anything goes, um, uh, you know, a true sort of authoritarian view of, of, of the exercise of state power. But that is, I think, the, the most serious critics of the institutional conservative movement on the new right. That's not what they're advancing. They're still advancing a fundamentally conservative view of government in American society, because even if we do have a more activist, originalist judiciary, for example, which I'm in favor of a, a more activist, originalist judiciary, but it's still an originalist judiciary, right? They are still fundamentally advancing a view of the Constitution and of the constitutionally prescribed limits on government power that is more limited than the left-wing alternative. You know, more broadly than not, in terms of using state power or you know, whatever power has been awarded to us to advance a conservative view of government and in an attempt to restore the traditional American political regime as envisioned by the founders in Lincoln, that will lead to a more limited government overall. That will lead to a, a, uh, you know, a society where there are more limits you know, based on the conservative view of, of, of what should be limited. Um, so it's, it's really – it is an argument over how much we value the means over the ends and – the, the critique that holds water, I think, of the institutional conservative movement is that we've become so obsessed with the means and the processes that we have lost all sight of whether or not the ends matter at all. And we have become a conservatism that is obsessed with preserving and conserving procedures and processes as if those are the ends in and of themselves. And in the meantime, we have not accomplished most of the ends that we'd like to accomplish. And we need to actually think creatively about uh, – other means to get to our ends. But the ends haven't really changed outside of the most radical sort of post-liberal Adrian Vermeule types who really are interested in, in a radically different ends than, than I'd like uh, to see the country move in. Um, I, I think we're really debating for the most part um, an approach to politics and where the conservative approach to politics has gone awry. We are not for the most part disagreeing about the ends that we'd like to direct the country towards. So in that sense, it's, it's, it, it's not, um, we haven't given up on the project of restoring limited constitutional government. Uh, in many ways, I think we've recommitted to it um, with a renewed vigor that is needed more than ever in the current moment. There's a lot in there that I would like to explore, but given our time constraints, I want to change to a different issue so I know that we cover it uh, before we're done here. And um, what I want to ask you is it Again, this is another impression I have question, so feel free to disabuse me of my impression if you think that it's incorrect. I have an impression that among younger people uh, now, especially younger people on the right, that the idea of capitalism or free markets um, as being either a very important part of what it means to be on the political right or at least a necessary part of what it means to be on the political right is strikes me as decreasing in importance to them. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Yeah, I do. I am not someone who 
considers myself um, part of that cohort for the most part, at least insofar as I still think um, one of the really valuable aspects of American conservatism is economic liberty and, and free enterprise. Um, I, I really, I do believe in capitalism still fundamentally. I think, again, the most intelligent iteration of the new right critique is that we have had a conservative movement uh, for the last, whatever, half century or so that has viewed everything in economic terms to the detriment of viewing things in cultural, political terms. And one of the results of that is that where the conservative movement has been the most successful has been economics. Uh, you know, we, we live in a country that is more business friendly today than it was 50 years ago for a variety of reasons, both on the state and, and the federal level. Um, so the, because of the conservative movement has prioritized economics so much, it has been much more successful there than it has in the realm of culture and politics. But there is a a sort of perverted thinking in at least a segment of conservatism that views free markets and free market economics as an end unto themselves. And we need to reclaim an idea of free market economics as an end towards something else, which is human flourishing, healthy families, a stable nation state, you know, these things that traditionally conservatives have understood as, as being enormously valuable. Now, I'm someone who still thinks that free markets are, for the most part, with, with some exceptions, the most effective means towards those higher ends. But the orthodoxy of free markets as the ultimate end is a problem. And that critique from the new right, I think, is one that's valid and is one that needs to be heard in, in some segments of the institutional conservative movement. I mean, there's certainly a lot in there as, you know, this being a podcast from the Acton Institute that is certainly in agreement on. I mean, the mm -hmm. advertisements we're running on other podcasts for this podcast begin with what good is freedom without virtue, that you need virtue and morality for the market to operate properly. Um, so I, I would agree with that. Where, where do you think that the disaffection with the idea of capitalism and markets on some segments of the new young right is coming from? Well, I think part of it is actually coming from the same source of disaffection that you have on the radical left with that is attractive to a lot of young people, right? The sort of post-2008 market crash world is one uh, where young people were uh, in very real ways left um, – you know, were, were left basically destitute. They were, they were sold this idea of an America, an American dream that no longer was accessible to them in the same way that it was accessible to older generations. It's very difficult to start a family today, much more difficult than it used to be for young people. Student loan debt crisis, right, is, is, is crushing a lot of young people. There are a variety of different ways that this manifests, but uh, the, left, the far left response to that is this sort of leftist anti-capitalism um, but the, the new right approach or the new right critique, I guess, of markets in the post-2008 world um, is that something did go wrong. And you can argue that it was bad government policy rather than markets that makes the things that conservatives and particularly social conservatives care about much more difficult to access. It is much more difficult to start a family and to have lots of children, to put a down payment uh, down on a, on a, on a house, um, to, uh, be able to support a family, even if you do start it, um, you know, the, 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 the variety of sort of building blocks of human flourishing that conservatives understand to be so crucially important have, uh, been made much, uh, they're built on a much shakier foundation today for, you know, wh whether or not that is the result of the free market is certainly an open question. Um, I think at least in some parts it was, but in other parts it was the result of really bad government policy and big government. But the point is 
the optics for the market are really bad right now, even if you're on the right or the left and you care about things like stable families and a flourishing nation, um, you know, uh, uh, jobs that where you can support a family, not on a college education, all of these things um, that are broadly attributed to neoliberalism, even if neoliberalism doesn't always deserve that attribution, um, are what capitalism means to my generation. Um, and I think there are real critiques to be made of sort of neoliberal economic orthodoxy um, where they have hollowed out our manufacturing sector, for example, in a way that, uh, you know, destabilized an entire region and destroyed families and, uh, you know, led to rampant drug addiction and whatnot. So uh, again, free markets generally a very good thing still, but we have to understand them in the context of being a tool to achieve different ends uh, rather than an end in, in and of himself. There are two things here that uh, I want to try to pull apart. Um, one of them is the the idea of free markets in the way that you just discussed it. And from an Acton Institute perspective, certainly there are things that uh, we believe are, are necessary beyond like free markets qua free markets, that there is an element of morality and virtue that is necessary for the market to, to operate appropriately. I think there's another element, though, and that is some of the what I would consider to be truths revealed by the some of the e economic free market thinkers that the right is traditionally pointed to. And we had a brief exchange about this, which is why I want to bring it up. So you had this proposal, I believe from, uh, was it Mitt Romney and is it Elizabeth Warren talking about, was it Warren? I can't remember. No, Kristen Sinema, excuse me, Senator from Arizona, um, a policy for raising the federal minimum wage. And I think this gets back to a lot of what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, which is the difference between, um, you know, conservative intentions and conservative ends. And the intention, I, un, as I understand it, and with a lot of the policy proposals that Mitt Romney is bringing forward, is that he has very good and noble intentions for how these policies should end up and what it should lead to. And one of the traditional critiques of that would be that you judge these policies not by their intentions, or at least not just by their intentions, but by the outcomes they produce. And unless we're going to start embracing uh, a lot of the economic thought from far more left-wing figures that say that you can raise the minimum wage uh, pretty much without limit, um, which is the logical conclusion of that argument, that raising the minimum wage is going to produce benefits to some people, but a lot of negative consequences. I see this in a lot of policy areas that think we can just, this is an, an economic reality. We don't have to like it or hate it. It doesn't matter. Um, it is going to exist whether we like it or not. And that having noble intentions behind it don't mean that that reality ceases to be a reality. That's absolutely right. And that is, uh, I think you're putting your finger on one of the real problems with the emergent new right thinking that really very much needs to be ironed out if the new right is to have a serious policy agenda that actually achieves the things that they want to achieve, um, is that there is a certain segment of sort of populist nationalist thinkers who have fully embraced this left-wing way of thinking about government as um, if it has good intentions, it'll work, right? If we, we we can, you know, just raise people's wages with no consequences by raising the minimum wage, right? Or, or at minimum, we can produce a result. Right. And 
try to ignore the idea that, okay, you may get some of the desired results, but it's also going to produce a lot of unintended consequences mm -hmm. that you aren't considering when you yes. initiate the policy, which to me has always been a major part of informing the limited scope of government concept that conservatives mm -hmm. and people on the right have had that, yes, you can use government to, it's a big blunt tool and you can get some of the desired outcome of a policy that you're trying to get, but you're also going to produce a whole bunch of things you never intended to. Yep. And we should be judicious as a result of that reality. And that critique is a very valuable one in trying to craft a sort of new conservative agenda. And it's one that I, I take very seriously. And it's why I'm, again, sort of often have feet in both camps in a lot of these debates. Um, and it's also why I'm skeptical of raising the minimum wage, right? It, it seems like the unintended consequences often outweigh uh, the, the benefits. But with that being said, you know, Mitt Romney's child allowance, right? Um, the resistance to that was, for the most part, what I heard was on these ideological small government grounds, which is that it's not the role of government to give money to working families, right? That is the kind of thinking that I, I think really uh, isn't productive because government can do some things to help advance conservative ends, right? We can make it easier for people to form families. Industrial policy, there's a real debate about it, but I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the capacity of industrial policy, at least on the margins, to try to, uh, to restore our manufacturing base. Uh, and, and we can debate all these things, right? But the point is, there we do have tools at our disposal on the margins to do better for American families and American workers than we have been for the last few decades. Uh, and we shouldn't be loath to, to, to take those tools just because of a larger legitimate insight that limited government is important and oftentimes uh, government policy is a blunt tool. We should be judicious in how we, we adjudicate uh, distinguishing between the two. But um, the fact that government policy often has unintended consequences is not an excuse to look for places where prudent government policy really can make a difference. I, I think that's reasonable. I would say with regard to the Romney, uh, the child uh, uh, fun policy. Um, our own Sam Gregg, I think, would make the argument, and I'm not him, nor will I try to be, that the problem with it is, is again, not its intentions of making it easier for people to have families. I think his argument and a fact-based argument would be um, it doesn't work. Uh, and that it has the places where it's kind of subsidies like that have been tried um, haven't worked. And it also, I think that there's a problem where the you're always going to lose the bidding war um, to, to the left on this, right? That if the idea is that we're just going to send money to people, um, then really what you're doing without offering some kind of a critique of you know direct subsidies to people is not the way to approach proper policy is that if we're now getting into like, well, you know, we, we see this in a lot of policy conversations right now that, you know, we want a two and a half trillion dollar infrastructure plan. Well, we want a one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure plan. And they're both ginormous and numbers that would have been completely uh, ridiculous to think about only 10 years ago. But you're never going to, with, with people who have zero compunction about spending a lot of taxpayer dollars or money that's printed, you're never going to win that battle. Well, but I, I guess I wouldn't frame it in that way because I don't think it's just about winning in terms of spending more money. Right? I, I think there are substantive differences between the way that the left and the right approaches policymaking. And it's precisely because of the right's insights about the limits of politics and uh, the adverse effects of a lot of different government policies that I think 
it's so valuable for us to actually be engaged in trying to craft pro-family policy, trying to craft industrial policy. Because if we cede all of that ground to the left, they are going to do a lot of really silly things that have adverse consequences that hurt America and Americans. But if, it, 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 if we offer a substantively different alternative that still speaks to a lot of the problems that are facing American families today with all of the insights about how uh, you know government policy is a blunt instrument and how especially sort of top-down centrally planned uh, fiascos often uh, hurt in all these adverse ways um, you know it's not just about it's not about a price tag so much as it is a, a substantively different vision for how we do pro-family policy but the problem with you know the, the sort of Republican Party establishment uh, at least recently is that they're just not interested in the idea of pro-family policy, right? It's on, on these sort of basic small government grounds. Uh, it's it's this idea that, well, it's just not the government's role to help families. Uh, and that is what I, I, I really reject, I think. I, I would I would only push back here, and, and this might be a good place to, to finally leave it, which is that there, there were people and there have been people who have been, you know, making arguments for that kind of thing for a while now. And what I find somewhat ironic, and I don't want to get into the, the disagreements between individual people because that's just distinctly less interesting to me. <laughs> but a lot of the Reformacon crowd that was making arguments for expanded child tax credits and things like that as, as yeah. ways that we could go to make the real world political compromises that you need to make with grand principle in order to move policy in a direction that you would like were first laughed out of the room by a lot of people who were the great defenders of the uh, Reagan karaoke uh, circuit that we talked about earlier. And now we're being laughed out of the room by a lot of the people who say, you know, um, who seem to me to be saying that, um, you know, the Ramesh Panurus, and if you read uh, the book, which was uh, by Ross Douthat. Grand, Grand New Party. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I can't remember. Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam. And Raihan Salam. Yep. Um, people who pose a lot of these uh, ideas are also seeming to me to be somewhat kind of like, well, they're not radical enough for where we think the policy problems are today. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a long conversation we're going to have to get into. I'm not so sure about that. I actually think that a lot of the Reformicons, um, uh, their ideas are being heard on a whole new platform with a whole new energy um, by the institutional Republican Party uh, compared to where they were a decade ago. They were on the margins a decade ago, right? This is like the frustrating thing about the Republican Party establishment a decade or so ago is they were completely uninterested in hearing those things. They're still not as interested in hearing those things as they should be, but there is more intellectual energy around developing those kinds of ideas uh, uh, than there was a decade ago. So th I think the point still stands is that the Republican Party is not where they need to be on these issues. Um, but I'm not sure that you know, for the most part, there are obviously sort of disputes and disagreements um, that that people like Ross Douthat are being laughed out of the room. I think people are taking their ideas pretty seriously. Nate Hockman is a Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute, a conservative fellow at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and an associate contributor for Young Voices. You can follow him on Twitter at NJ Hockman. Nate, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, 
or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.